What's up, Mets fans? Back here for episode number 25 of the Mets Up Podcast. I'm your co-host, Giraffe Neck Mark. Mark Luino here with James Schiano. Jeter had no range. Always talking Mets baseball, especially after every single series. We just wrapped one up against the Washington Nationals. Four-game series in D.C., and to say it did not go the way we expected, I think, would be a bit of an understatement. The Mets came out, four-game series, won one game. And it was in a doubleheader that was pretty much carried by Francisco Lindor. So we have a lot to talk about here in today's episode. Of course, you guys know I got to give a little plug here to all the social media and where you can find us. So on Twitter and Instagram, Mets Up. You also can follow our YouTube channel. Subscribe there, Mets Up Podcast. We're always posting videos over there. And then if you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you have your podcasts, that's where you can find us. James... I mean, like, I feel like there's no other way to say it, but it was a super disappointing weekend because we had the opportunity to really make like some damage in D.C., almost put the Nationals completely out of it at this point, I feel like. And the Mets did the opposite. Yeah, definitely. The Nationals, we just watched the Nationals revive their entire season. And I'm not going to say that we were super optimistic heading into the series anyway. Like, DeGrom wasn't pitching. Marcus Stroman wasn't pitching. Like, right there off the bat, you're, not, you're missing your two best starters. Pitching depth isn't really where it needs to be anyway. We're still just like right on the fringe of getting most of our starting position players back. But this is still much worse than I thought was going to happen. Yeah, I just I didn't expect three of four to be taken from us. In the way that it was, the offense just refused to show up. It was literally Lindor, and that was kind of it. I know Pete did a home run today in game four, but I mean, I mean that probably just pulls us into game four right here. We didn't get the great performance of usual from Taiwan, but the offense didn't help either. No, him not being sharp shouldn't have made this game non-competitive Correct. for us. Uncompetitive for us. It's a word they've been using a lot in this podcast with improper grammar, but that's okay. We have to be able to pick a guy like Taiwan up. Even without his best start, his best stuff, even as his velocity was down across the board, he was still at least mildly effective. Like He got us into the sixth inning. Nationals were mostly off the board besides for Kyle fucking Schwarber. Piece of shit. Rat fuck. It's just like... Yeah, he's, he's officially one of the ref fucks. <laughs> I'm happy to add him to the list. Yeah. Like, Taiwan's been leaning on his slider all year. It got crushed today. The two-seamer that we saw on Tuesday was not a part of the game plan as much today. It just wasn't clean, but it was fine. Like, he pitched well enough for a team to win a game. Yeah, I felt like he had to become that, like, pitch-to-contact kind of guy today. It just seemed like they were taking good swings never were particularly fooled I know that the final box score doesn't look fantastic but he really did scrape together a start that shouldn't have lost the Mets the game if they had any sort of capable offense today but it's like this series in particular made us you know we were all about the bench mob we were hyping them up we were super excited it feels like this series was a real sign that like we need to get our guys back soon because it feels like guys like Peraza and all these other dudes are starting to get figured out a little bit yeah, definitely. Like Peraza, McKinney, Nito, have we seen struggle tremendously over the last month? I think the bench mob was really fun. It was because they were on the bench. Yes. That's a big part of what made that bench mob so special. They had some energy, some vibrance. They can come off the bench, light a spark, and it really proved this series that those guys just aren't starting caliber players. And we knew that. They weren't signed to be that. These are not the Wilpon era Mets. Kevin Pillar was not signed to be your starting center fielder. Jose Peraza was not signed to be your starting second baseman. Jonathan Villar was not signed to be your starting third baseman. That is not the roles that these guys were envisioned. It's not the roles that these guys are going to have even in one week's time. So 
Mets fans, while we took some lumps this series and we were a little bit exposed for the roster that we currently have, I don't think this is the roster that we should be judged on. And we've been saying that time and time again over the last month. The way we have kept our head above water without Conforto, without McNeil, without Nimmo. JD. JD. I don't even remember JD. There hasn't been one word about JD Davis. I wanted JD Davis to come out of the dugout so badly today against Patrick Corbin with men on. It just didn't happen. Dude owns Patrick Corbin. Like we saw Nimmo, I think, got into a game today in Syracuse against Davey Garcia. Got a nice single, I saw. McNeil should be coming back, I think, tomorrow, Monday, if you guys it are listening seems to like this. tomorrow. Yeah. It also was Friday, then it was Sunday, and now it's Monday. Yeah, so. I feel like that's just more so like they were worried about the doubleheader stuff. Um, who Conforto, we said, they said would be a week after McNeil, right? Yeah, but this seems like it's quicker. It seems like he will be ready by the end of next week. Which, but, these reinforcements couldn't come quicker right now with the way the offense has been. They couldn't, but the craziest part about today's game was that if Kyle Schwarber wasn't the greatest player of all time, we would have been very in it. And, I mean, I can't even believe Davey Martinez pulled him from the game. He had three homers, and he pulled him for defense in a game where you didn't really need to do that. The Mets were never really, like, dangerous in this game, it felt like. Yes, they had guys on base and in some spots, but it just didn't feel like the Mets were ever really making that rally, which is so, like, not or uncharacteristic of this team especially against the Nationals' bullpen that has been susceptible at times this year. Like, we didn't get near Tanner Rainey or Brad Hand this entire series. And Brad Hand, even today, like, watching the at-bats, like, McCann had a horrible at-bat. Pete had a horrible at-bat. They just were very non-competitive at-bats where, like, pitches down the middle and our guys are late. We, this is something we talked about earlier in the season where it seems like we don't take advantage of mistakes. And when this team was getting hot and beating the Padres and the Cubs and all these teams, we were jumping on mistakes. But I felt like this series in particular, nobody was, particu- like, sharp at all. I kind of saw for the first time this series that the Mets are a much different team at home compared to on the road. Like, it's very clear that this team plays a lot of emotion and pulls a ton from the Mets faithful in Queens. Which I feel like we also got a little bit of that last year, too, with guys like Pete and all those having, like, down years, per se. But, like, that also had to be with, like, they, they live off this these fans. They love playing in front of the home field. That's something that you got to get over, though, at the same time. Like, that's not a legitimate excuse to lose games on the road. Yeah, for sure. And we will see if that's actually a real thing over these next eight games yeah. this week. Which, I don't even know. I don't, I don't really have much more to say about this game at all. Like, just Taiwan wasn't sharp. Got hit hard, whatever. Yeah. Schwarber, like, no. No, let's, let's move to the start of the series now. Game one, we had Joey Lucchese, Joey Fuego going yeah. up against Eric Fetty. And in your head, that's a game you go, there are going to be a lot of runs scored by both teams. Mm-hmm. This is not going to be a pitcher's duel. And we had the absolute opposite. It was, in fact, a pitcher's duel, which is crazy to say with those two guys on the mound. It was a pitcher's duel, but, like, neither of them were, like, world beaters. Like, both teams were putting lots of hard-hit balls in play, repeatedly. Francisco Lindor himself, on the eve of his offensive explosion, put two balls in play above 104 miles an hour. The Mets, as a team, had 10 hard-hit balls in general. It was, a, like, a mystical event that they could not find one run. Everything was finding gloves. Everything. Everything was finding gloves, and it felt like there were just so many warning track hits, too. Like, even Drury late in that game, he got in the air, and I hate that Washington yeah. Nationals broadcast camera because everything looks like it's crushed. And I'm like, oh, my God, Drury does it, and it's, like, caught at the warning track. I'm like, oh, my God, man. Like, again, we're just short. This game was a weird, like, foreshadowing event for the, how the rest of the series was going to go. The fact that we couldn't even put together any semblance of a rally after the middle of the game. We didn't even have a hit after the fifth inning. That's bad. That's so bad. 
gets Eric Fetty in the Nationals bullpen. Like, are you fucking kidding Eric me? Eric Fetty's just not very good, and I know, like, his last two starts, one against the Mets, and I don't know who they made one against before. This whole season, he's been better than he ever has been. Like, his K rate is, like, actually around 25%, which for him is a massive But that's, like, what, like, league average-ish? About, but it's Eric Fetty. True, he's anything but league Eric average, Eric Fetty typically. being league average is a, is a massive achievement. I would, I'd take Eric Fetty right now on the Mets. He could pitch tomorrow. We do need a, a starter to pitch coming this week. I think I saw, just just a little topic here, because I think we should throw it out there now. Jared Eikhoff, they, they called him up, I think, right? They selected his contract. Yeah, no, I, yeah I, I was going to mention that in our preview, but he is pitching tomorrow, 100%. That's crazy. I don't like that too much. We'll get to that in our preview, but the notes I wrote originally on this game was a lot of positive things about Joey Lucchese, and that was all just taken away from us. I.L. I can't believe... How, how, what did that happen? Elbow inflammation. Like, that's... Like, what? That's very serious, especially for a guy like... I know his nickname's Joey Fuego, but he throws anything but it. So for him to yeah. get, like, these elbow issues is concerning, especially because he's been pitching so much better than we expected. Like, he's been a very serviceable starter right now. Super Still can't face the lineup the third time through. I know Definitely Rojas not. had to push it because, of course, of the schedule coming up here, and that's not what lost us the game is trying to push Joey Lucchese no, there by any means. Not at all. It actually was close to winning us. Yes, the game. just ipso facto. But, but yeah, but Lucchese has been so like really, really solid for us, and to now just have him ripped out from under us when like we were just starting to get used to Joey Lucchese pitching every five days stinks. It's like a really cruel joke. It's like, when does this end? Like, I'll even just talk about my Lucchese notes right now that I wrote out while watching the game on Friday, even though all of my emotion is gone from this segment. But he had 12 called strikes on his sinker, which was a season high for him. Incredible stuff. The Nationals only put three curves in play. He threw 31 of them. That's a lot. Put three in play. Swung at 13 out of 31 pitches. Only one whiff. But they just couldn't, they just couldn't do it. A lot of foul balls, called strikes, and... It's like kind of becoming like knuckleballish. A little bit. I know that uh, you know Gary, Ron, Keith, all of them when they were doing the game this weekend, they mentioned with Lucchese, he used to bring his hands above his head uh, in his windup, and he has cut that out mm-hmm. completely. And if you look, I didn't even yeah, that. I didn't notice it too wow. until they said it. But if you look back, you can actually like find like him being a lot more under control and attacking the zone to getting rid of that shit with his hands over his head. Like he has been a lot more. He's able to repeat his mechanics a lot more. Which again, shout out to Hefner. That's clearly all him. Yeah, all Hefner. Hefner's the GOAT. But that's actually kind of interesting. And the irony is that when I've broken down Lucchese a few times this year, and we've spoken about it on and off air, he always got by with deception because he didn't really have great stuff. And now he's added velocity in all of his pitches. So I'm sure that maybe taking out that motion has made him just generally more efficient, like to the plate. It's a lot less moving parts because his hands are, like your hands are so important, obviously, as a pitcher. That doesn't really need to be said. But for him to have his hands in a consistent position and be able to go and pull from the same spot every single time, it just allows for him to repeat those mechanics a lot more. And we've seen it in his performance. It has definitely shown. Definitely shown. And he's just been ripped away from us. Yeah, which is like, I I can't even imagine we're having this conversation right now that we're talking about Joey Lucchese being ripped away from us, but he's been pretty solid. This is like when, like, there's a girl who, like, has a crush on you, but, you, like, you don't really like her. You're like, ah, I don't know, she's not that cute. She's not really my type, not really my vibe, yada, yada, yada. And then, like, suddenly, like, something happens. You're like, wait, I actually do like this girl. I think we'd be great together. And you finally, like, commit and you make that jump with the girl. And she's off with another guy, yes. some guy that you hate. She moved on. In Lucchese didn't necessarily move on here, but it's like now that he's gone, we miss him. When are we elbow inflammation? Unless this is actually a phantom IL state, which I will not rule out. Because that just happens. You can't prove or disprove elbow inflammation. It doesn't seem it like it's that way. 
This is probably bad. Yeah, like the the idea behind that Phantom IL stint is that like you don't now have to lose a forty man spot to bring up Ikoff, and eventually when he gets sent down, you'll just option or DFA him at that point because who really cares? But it stinks. But yeah, that game one nothing. Edwin Diaz blows it, but I like I just I didn't even really care. Like people were upset. Like oh no, here it comes again. It's like no, like. Diaz, he did get lucky on that one call to Soto, the 3-1 call that was like a foot off the plate. But then he also got screwed on that 3-2 call that was a strike. And that kind of took him out of it, I feel like. I think a lot of people, including me, were a little bit upset that Lugo was only into phase one batter in the eighth and not ready for the ninth. But then afterwards, we found out that that was his call. Like he just said he couldn't do it anymore. He left it all out there. And it seemed like he had to get ready like kind of quickly. Yeah. And maybe he wasn't fully warm, and that caused him to use more of what he had in the tank in that one spot, and he got out of it. So I guess, I don't know. The weirdest thing about this DS situation is how different of a pitcher he is in safe situations versus non-safe situations. Like, this narrative has been brewing for a while, and it's, like, really borne out to being true right now. This season, he has faced 55 batters in safe situations and 53 in non-safe situations. Pretty even. G- generally shocking that that's that even. But his whip in save situations is 0.65. Gross. Disgusting. It, non-saves is 1.71. That's horrendous. That's like a terrible pitcher. Horrendous. That's the difference between like Edwin Diaz and like Paul fucking Fry. Chase and Shreve. Like, <laughs> Chase and Shreve's having a fantastic Oh, is he having year. another good year? You, I will not let you throw dirt I Chase thought Chase and Shreve would only be good as a Met. He goes somewhere else and goes back to being irrelevant. <laughs> Pittsburgh. All right, Chase and Shreve, well, shout out to you. Well, yeah, when we get down to the trade deadline primer later, there's a lot of really weird X-Mets I have ready to ready this pew. I'm excited. I'm be, excited to get there. It's going to be awful to hear, but it's true. But, like, this DS thing, I don't, I don't even know how to, like, refer to now, that. Now, I will say for his career, Dacoma put out a stat of, like, because he hates the narrative of save versus non-save situation because over his career, it's relatively similar. In fact, I think he does mm-hmm. have a better better numbers in, save, or in non-save situations than in save over his career, but you can't deny that, like, one, he's a different pitcher than he was three, four years ago. It's the same thing with the Trevor Bauer argument when we were talking about that in the offseason, where you can't talk about Edwin Diaz now and use stats from 17, 16. It just makes no sense. So right now, he's it's a focus thing. I I really do, man. It's like the trumpets. He (laughs) He needs, like, that high pressure to almost, like, get himself hyped up and focus. Is that a problem in and of itself? It's concerning that... It's see like mental stuff is always tough because you can't just really fix mental stuff. That's the things you worry about when you have relievers is that they just mentally lose it. Like you, how many guys have we seen over the years be closers? All of a sudden, one thing happens and they're done. They have no idea what to do. So I don't think Diaz is obviously in that scenario because he's still money when we need him. But in Mm -hmm. non-safe situations, he's got to be able to find a way to at least dig down and like someone's got to lie to him and tell him no, the score is one nothing. We're winning. You need to, like, put Edwin Diaz in a hyperbaric chamber until, like, the seventh inning. Then let him stretch. Yeah, and say, like, don't, no one tell him anything. We're up, we're up one. Base is loaded. Yeah. Come in. Don't even put fake runners on. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> like the little things they put on the horses oh in the park. Oh, my God. That's exactly what he needs. He needs the blinders. Don't see anything. <laughs> Just focus on the catcher. He doesn't hold runners on anyway, so who cares? It's true. We've, how many times have we watched him come in and forget that there's a guy on base, and they just walk to second? Simply ignore it. That's just an Edwin Diaz thing. Another thing I wanted to mention about that um, ninth inning was a pretty ballsy hit-and-run call by Davey Martinez. Crazy. It, and it worked. Yeah. It worked to perfection. Like, literally, to keep Zimmerman out of a double-play situation, where I, 
I don't, you could turn a triple play in Ryan Zimmerman. Ryan Zimmerman would be the slowest member of this podcast if he were part of it. <laughs> I'm pretty slow. I don't know about that. I read like a 5-4-40 when I last ran one. So that's like offensive lineman. Probably blows Ryan Zimmerman <laughs> out of the water. Did you see him running down the line this week? That gave it It moves. looks painful. But like the other thing too with that Zimmerman hit is that Diaz beat him. That was a sick pitch. And he just yeah. put the bat on the ball because it was simply a hit and run. Davey Martinez literally bailed him out. Literally props Davey Martinez. Remember that guy seems to be dead. He finds another he life. He is... A cat, man. He's got nine lives, and I think he's on, like, number seven right now, but he just does not die. Does not die. Whatever. Game one, it was just it was an awful game. It wasn't fun to watch. Like, it was just, it wasn't bad baseball because, like, technically there was, like, nothing wrong, but it was bad from, like, a viewer perspective because you're like, this game stinks. Yeah, like, it wasn't like Scherzer versus DeGrom, like, throwing yeah. zeros to the seven. It was Eric fucking Fetty and Lucchese just figuring it out. I don't think anybody in Major League Baseball could have bet that those guys would be going six innings and not allow a run against each other. I'm actually, like, super curious as to what the over-under was in Vegas for that game. But that awful game on Friday carried us into two pretty not-great games on Saturday. Yeah, I mean, game two was, like, fake good because the Mets won. And we won, what, like 5-1 yeah. or whatever it was. But that was 5-2. That was like the most fake good game ever. There was one player that had a good game, like really, that you need to talk about. And it's Francisco Lindor, who seemingly got a little bit back into his groove this weekend, which is nice to see. He had a bunch of games where he was getting hits, hitting the ball hard, like you said, in game one. And in game two, it paid off after the Nationals mm-hmm. talked shit for some apparent reason on Francisco Lindor. That's our bad take of the week. Yeah, right? it has to be. We'll get to that in the, at the end in a little bit. But like Lindor, two homers, had a hit or three hits in the game, two homers, five RBIs. He literally was the offense along with David Peterson and his double. Four hard hit balls too. Like he, these were not cheapies. Like he was crushing. That second home run too was a moon Crushed. Shot. He knew it was gone at the second he hit it. Yeah. Pimped it, chilled. It was the first time I tweeted this that we've seen Francisco Lindor take over a game as a Met. Like with the bat. That was his like, I don't want to say like coming out moment because he's still, he's still, you know, hovering around that 700 OPS thing. But that's like where as if you're a Mets fan, you see that and you go, there he is. That is Francisco Lindor we paid for. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that's the Francisco Lindor this team needs. That's the Francisco Lindor this team has needed for the past few weeks. Getting it for one game like this and literally putting us on his back to win a game was very, very, very valuable. Yeah, I mean, he he saved us quite a few games in the loss column here because that game, if he doesn't hit those home runs, we lose. It's just straight up, we lose 2-0. Otherwise, I mean, from this game, there's not too much to take from it. Like, Peterson was fine, I guess. He was fine i got some stuff to talk about of course it's cool that he was a factor on offense first hit extra base hit crushed it i mean he's yeah. six foot six or whatever he is so i'd hope that it goes far that was the second hardest hit ball by a met in this game that's, besides that francisco Lindor's second home that's run. the stat of the game right there david peterson had the second hardest hit ball we had no clue what to do at the plate again wasn't cheapy it was over 100 wasn't cheapy got a double and he scored two runs but like so talk about Peterson on the mound. This was another step in the right direction after Monday's game. Like, good, getting a little more comfortable. The David Peterson that we once knew, one who can be effective. He mixed the pitches a little bit more than Monday, which is another indication that he is finding his groove again through 30% sinkers, 24% sliders, 24% forcing fastball, so got the forcing fastball back ranking, and 20% changeups, four pitches moving. The sinker somehow had five whiffs and 14 swings, which was surprising. Importantly, the slider finally got some whiffs again, had two whiffs on six swings, also five called strikes, something I talked about two weeks ago when he was down really bad, not locating the slider, but this time he definitely was locating it. He threw a couple of the back footies that worked out, he threw a couple of the back doors that worked out, a couple of ones that cutting outside to lefties. He kind of was able to put it in every zone that you could want a slider, commanding both sides of the plate, which is 
astronomically important for him. And the most important thing with that slider is none of them were crushed. Yes, no, he did not get hit very hard, which was great to see because that's always the thing is he either has no control or he's just getting teed off on. And he didn't do any of that, which was good. The baby steps with David Peterson. Definitely not even one slider was put in play. Love to hear that because he had been struggling yeah. with that pitch badly. Definitely. And he only, it's kind of funny, like talking about two David Petersons. He only got, I think, three or four ground balls this whole game. Which is so funny because like his thing is like he's a ground ball pitcher. Yeah, but again, this game when he uses 50% of his pitches are either sliders or forcing fastballs, it's just different. And it, it worked. As long as he goes out there and gives us around five innings, which I really wish he would have gotten that, to that fifth inning and got the yeah. win. Stupid stat, but I think it would have just been good for his like um, psyche. Yeah, the momentum to do that. You kind of saw the Nationals like really wanting to get John Lester like a complete game right after this that we'll get to in a moment. I have one more funny stat to share. But I think the guys on the field still care about shit like that way more so than the talking heads and the statisticians and everyone else besides fantasy baseball players. So Yeah, I mean like guys will Keith will love to tell you how he never cared about his numbers, but then Keith will also rattle off his numbers as if he did care because every player, whether they want to say it or not, is keeping some sort of tab of how they're playing. If you're a guy who doesn't seem to care about getting a win or hitting a home run and you're like, ah, I don't know, man, I'm just playing, like, you're kind of lying. There's no physical way you don't know, you're not aware of what's going on statistically. Did Keith mention today about how Pete tied him on the Mets all-time home run list? I don't know. I didn't hear. I was outside watching the game, so, like, the sound wasn't truly yeah. high. Yeah, also, for the listeners at home, especially our watchers on YouTube, you could see Mark and I have very different digs. Mark is in his parents' house in New Jersey. I'm actually at my grandmother's house because, a little just funny aside here, I'm back home in New Jersey for Father's Day, hanging out with the family a little bit, a little barbecue, a little pool action, having a good time. A U-Haul was whizzing down my street today, clipped the telephone wire above my house, and knocked out the Wi-Fi and cable in my home. Oh my God. So I was not able to watch the Mets game, I had to listen on the radio, and I had to go to my grandma's house to record the podcast. So we're working hard for the listeners at home, all about the podcast life. Kind of strange, weird China antiques in the background, yeah. but hey, that's what we you get. We both got China closets right behind us, which I don't know if there's another baseball podcast that has two China podcast or closets in it in one video. So we're definitely unique in that I don't sense. even know how many other baseball podcasts have a China closet in either of the of the podcasters' yes. lives. There's two here. That's, that's unbelievable. In your view. Everyone check us out on YouTube. Messed up. But... One more stat I wanted to share from game two. This is kind of a weird inkling I had with VR, which was funny. I think also Wayne Randazzo mentioned it on the radio cast this weekend. But he is like adept at getting on base in the first inning. Jonathan VR this season in the first inning has a 520 on base percentage. That's so wild. That's so elite. <laughs> and a 292 on base percentage in all the other That's innings. so not good. It's really weird. That's the Jonathan VR effect. He will give you some interesting stuff, and he'll also be yeah. Jonathan VR, like we saw him make back-to-back -back errors the other night. So, like, yeah. he will give you those crazy moments that you're like, damn, only Jonathan VR is going to do that stuff. And then he'll also give you moments where you go, ah, oh, only Jonathan VR. He's kind of like one of those words that means a ton of things in different languages, like an aloha or like a shalom. Yeah. Like, you can say Jonathan VR's name in 14 different tones and contexts. I, I, I'd probably be able to figure out about what's going on just based on the way you're saying yes. it. Yes. Maybe it's a focus thing too. Like I can see VR having focus and then losing it. He's like, it's like the first thing in the game. He's hyped up and it's like the third. He's like, ah, it's just like I'm getting, I need a snack. I need some water. He's getting tired. But yeah, that was game two. Lindor carried us. Bullpen did a fine job. Trevor May got me scared because we, we burned yeah. every good arm in that game, which was interesting. But, but luckily... It didn't hurt us because I do Trevor May came in and I was like, oh boy, this is not, I was texting yeah. you. I was like, this is mm -hmm. about as bad as it can get. And you were on a delay. So when you texted yeah, me was. that you got to that part, 
I was like, oh, James doesn't even know the games have been over for five minutes. Like, <laughs> I was like, I'm, I'm feeling good right now. But luckily, we got one win this series. That was game two. Game three, though, not very good. No, it wasn't good at all. But, like, again, we just were crushing the ball and just nothing was falling. Like, I understand the fear coming out with the Mets offense right now when we scored... How many runs have we even scored this year? We scored five plus two plus Plus two. two, So, yeah, nine runs. Nine nine runs in four games. That's awful. But, again, we had ten hard-hit balls in this game. Like, we were – I felt like, at least, we were getting a lot of solid contact off of John Lester. We just couldn't buy, like, a fucking hit. Yeah, and it's also hard to win a game when, like, you're going with Gasselman to start, which we've liked Gasselman. He's done well in his role this year. But when you go, like, Gasselman, Sean Reed Foley, and Reed Foley got absolutely shelled, which that was going to happen at some point. We've talked about his stuff all year long. Like, it's fine. He does what he does for us. That's his role. That's his job. It just happened in a game. Luckily, at least it happened in a game where we weren't scoring again. Like, at least this wasn't a game we were going to win and, like, dominate. This was a game that we lost. That is some old Mets, like, fucked up logic. That spin zone at right least, there. At least our guy pitched poorly in a game where we sucked Yes, anyway. exactly. I have to find a positive out of it. Because, like, how crushing would that have been if, like, we scored, like, six runs that game and then he just comes out and gets shelled? At least we stunk. We got a little Reed Foley breakdown because this was a guy that we liked a lot. All Mets fans should like him a lot. He's played a very important role for this team. But it always seemed a little bit like fool's gold. And now that might be coming to fruition. The first thing that jumps off the page with me about Reed Foley is those spin rates have been not great since he came back from the minors. And if anyone is paying attention, some things have happened in baseball with spin rates, like since Sean Reed Foley left and has come back. So that's something something to fear. They actually call it the Sean Reed Foley effect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sean Reed Foley just sent seismic waves through baseball with his incredible pitching. He's just just so good that MLB needs to impose a rule to stop Sean Reed Foley. Of course. It's an anti-Sean Reed Foley agenda in Major League Baseball. I will not stand That's for it for another moment. That's snake Rob Manfred. Again, as the spin rate police might tell you, like maybe there's just a sample size thing. He did only throw nine sliders, and that was the pitch that spin rates dropped the most. But that begs the question, why did Sean Reed Foley only throw nine sliders? Or one-fifth of all of his pitches? Yeah, I don't, get that. I don't know. It's got to be a game plan thing where they just decided they weren't going. I don't know. It, it was tough. There was a lot of questions this weekend from both sides where it was like, what was the reasoning that we did X or we did Y? And it wasn't necessarily what won or lost us the game, but it was just, it seemed uncharacteristic of this Mets team. Definitely. He was so successful early in the year. I think back to that outing against the Braves where he picked up the slack for Taiwan when he left with his injury, where he was mixing his slider, his four-seamer, and his changeup, and he was getting results with all three pitches. On Saturday, he threw 80% fastball. Yeah, that can't happen. And they were... They were consistently getting crushed. Sean Foley does not throw 100 miles an hour. He can't just get by by throwing, like, medium-velocity fastballs. It's never going to work. For Sean Reed Foley to be an effective pitcher, he really does have to use all three pitches effectively because yeah. he doesn't have that plus stuff. His fastball becomes harder to hit because you're working off that slider and changeup. Like you said, he's not a Roldis Chavin. He's not Noah Syndergaard is throwing 101 miles an hour out here. No, it wasn't recipes for success. And it was so clear off the bat. But then also like the weird, awful part about this game was that we had some life at the end. It felt like if this was a nine inning game, we were right fucking there. Yeah, which stinks. Uh, Lindor, I know, came out afterwards to talk about the doubleheaders a little bit, saying that he likes them because he hates playing 18 innings in like one day at shortstop. He didn't even play 14. He didn't even play 14. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what to feel about these doubleheaders. Cause like, I think there's time we've been very good in doubleheaders this year. And like, I think yeah. it definitely does help a team like us, especially when we are down on pitching to at least play seven inning doubleheaders instead of nine. Great. So in that aspect, like, yes, I like it, but man, we gotta, 
we got to do something here. Like, how is there even this many doubleheaders coming up? We talked about this last week. It's fucking ridiculous. MLB put the Mets having three doubleheaders one week. The Braves are playing two in two days. Yeah, that should be criminal. That's so fucked up. They should have not been playing a doubleheader tomorrow and move that or something. I don't know. Do, are we allowed to, like, decline scheduling changes? Like, could Sandy Alderson just have said no? Like, move that to July? I wish, but it seems like baseball is very, very concerned about getting every game in by the end of the season. So they want to get as many done as quickly as possible and worry about the end of the season when it comes. We're playing the Braves and Phillies so many more times. And you know what's crazy about this? the Nationals? I don't think we play them until August now. And we do actually have a doubleheader already scheduled with the Nationals beginning of September. Yeah, it's bizarre. I hate the scheduling. It's, it's so bad. It's so stupid. I fucking hate the scheduling. And then, like, just to get back to the sixth and seventh innings yesterday, we had a little bit of juice in the sixth. Pilar was up, two men on, two out. And C.B. Buckner rung him up on a pitch in Baltimore from Washington. It would have hit Juan Soto in the left buttocks. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. It was the worst call of the day on umpire. Audit. Yeah, no, it was so bad. I mean, C.B. Buckner is very well known. Him, Angel Hernandez, and Kerwin Danley are known as the three worst umpires in all of baseball. Those guys just stink. They're terrible. And what do you know? We got two of them in this series. Kerwin Danley in game one, C.B. Buckner in game three. This umpiring crew this weekend was atrocious. Even going back to game one, they missed that Billy McKinney call where he clearly turned and rounded first base, tagged him out. They're like, I didn't see it. He's safe. Like, that can't happen. And you know what else can't happen? That call on Kevin Pillar. That was in another no. area code. Again, not saying that scoring two runs in the sixth inning would have changed the results of this game, but it could have just gotten some momentum, like the heart of the order was going to be coming up soon, like would have helped Pilar swing a decently hot bat. You hate to see a call like that ever, even just to help your team. It's just ridiculous. You know, it, like either way, I would be going like, oh boy, that's terrible. Even if it were the Mets were on the receiving end of it and like getting the benefit of the doubt there, it's just... It's bad. It's bad. The umpiring situation this year, I feel like, has been worse than it's ever been. And I don't know if it's just because we're more focused on baseball or really pushing for this robot umpire stuff, but they are not making a good case for them to stick around much longer. No, I don't think they're going to. And we've talked about these four awful games as much as I even want to, but I just want to give two more positives about game Let's three. Do it. Nice to see Almora get two nice hits, two doubles coming off the IL. Yep. That was pretty cool. No, that's cool. big, especially because we DFA'd Mason Williams. So Almora yeah. is now that fourth outfielder or fifth mm -hmm. outfielder, however many we're going to carry. He's the defensive center He's fielder. the defensive center fielder, but it's good to see that there's a little life left in that bat. Because I think when we saw him a little bit earlier in the year, he also was still getting like minimal, minimal, minimal playing time. So it's hard to get mm -hmm. your back going when you play once every 10 days, which is what it seemed like for Almora. Good to see that mm -hmm. there's just a, a chance that back can do something. Because I was starting to get a little worried. Definitely. And there is a chance. I believe that there's something. Also, my guy Yenzi. Yeah. Call back up. Look decent in mop-up duty. He's definitely a worthwhile arm who can be a major leaguer. Yeah. Which... That's a win. But hopefully we get no injuries to this bullpen because this bullpen really has been great. But if he needs to step in and fill in for somebody, it's good to know that he's a capable arm. Yes, capable arm. Perfect. I love uh, a competent major league baseball Exactly. Player. Our favorite term on this podcast. We love calling people competent major league baseball players. Speaking of which, let's go ahead and preview this Brave series where uh, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if I would call Jared Eikhoff a competent major league baseball player at this point. He got shelled in Not AAA. yet, but he... He could prove that tomorrow. If Jared Eikhoff gives me three innings of successful baseball tomorrow, I will call him a competent major league How long do you player, think they the have the on. leash for him? Like, how long do you let Jared Eikhoff go? You let him go through the order one time and see what happens. That's what I would do. And then least. who comes in after it? Is it Drew Flo, or are we going to go? Drew pitched today. Drew pitched today. Oh, yeah, that's right. 
Oh my goodness. Today's been a day. Today's been a daze. It's been a long day. This whole series has been a fever dream. It feels like as, as if it just has not happened. Yeah. So let's just say Eikhoff goes through one time. That's the best case scenario. Who knows what we're going to see with Jared Eikhoff. He has not looked promising in the minors and he didn't look great in spring training either. Spring training, of course, take everything with a grain of salt. But when a guy is just getting teed off on at every single level he's apparently at, it's not a recipe for success. No, but we're going to need... <laughs> a fifth starter this week. We probably might need a six. So I I hope he's okay because we're going to need some help this weekend in Philadelphia with him. So maybe he can be fine. I guess DeGrom's going to pitch game one though. That's pretty much official at this yep. point. So I'm hoping he goes seven. I think the just have- Mets are really looking for him to go seven. Yeah, I think that they're hoping that. But I, I, how can we even say that? I don't even know what to expect out of him at this point. It seems like he's fine based on everything with the shoulder stuff. It really seems like he's fine because he's, he's thrown. He's, they're making no, not a big deal about it at all. And you would think like small deal small out of deal. all the like stars in Major League Baseball that are pitchers. Anytime you hear an injury, it's like just IL him, shelve him. And the Mets have a shul- shoulder soreness with him and a flexor in- injury. And DeGrom's not going to miss a start. I think that if the circumstances were different, which sucks to say because that is like famous last words. If the circumstances were different, I think there's a good chance he would be on the IL. If we didn't have nine games in six days or seven days, whatever this situation is starting from yesterday, and Joey Lucchese or was not in the IL or possibly Carlos Carrasco or Noah Syndergaard were healthy, wherever they may be, I just, I don't, I, I fear, I fear the worst. It's going to be a tough, tough series in Atlanta. Now, good thing is they're still not playing particularly good baseball. That team is just so hot and cold. They seem to love to go four and six every time in their last 10. It's a big thing for them yeah. this year. So at least we're going in there, and it's not like we're playing a smoking hot Braves team. No. But it's still scary. I just fear. This is the most negative I've probably been this entire season. I fear that we're walking in right now as like like a limping deer, and they have a chance to come in and actually just like put a bullet right Yeah, in. which the good— To get morbid, my bad. The good thing for us— is that the Mets are still in first place by a pretty good lead because Philly and Atlanta yeah. keeps losing. So we're up four on Philly, five and a half on Atlanta still. So even with a terrible series, we're still fine. But obviously, we got we got to keep that lead. We got to keep it going. We've been in first place for six weeks with the replace Mets. There's no reason now with this team getting healthier with McNeil possibly being back and Conforto and Nimmo being back on the way. This is when the team's really got to hit their stride right before the All-Star break and finish off the first half strong. Definitely. And again, like to now become positive, like we're used to being, we're going to have DeGrom tomorrow and we're going to have Stroman on Tuesday. So no matter what, at least we have our two guys possibly just stop, stop this bleeding a little bit, get us a couple easy wins, figure it the fuck out tomorrow evening with Jared Eikhoff. As we like to say, it's going to be a funky adventure and just keep the Braves off the board. Keep that offense not hot as it hasn't been. Just beat them. You're better than them. Yeah. This all-star break can't come soon enough. Uh, let's just get through it no. and continue to stay in first place. That's really kind of the part I'm at right now with this team is just stick with it. Stay in first place. Keep playing good baseball. We've seen this team play good baseball with a worse roster on the field. So just Let's wake up a little bit. Hopefully the series was a little bit of a wake-up call. Like, hey, that's right. We can't just coast against the Nationals. We can't just coast against these teams. We have to come out and play. Definitely. And you saw this team rise to the occasion against the Padres and against the Cubs. So I'm hoping that we channel some more of that energy again against a Braves team that at least it seems like internally the Mets have been very focused on for a long time. Everyone knows that you have to beat the Braves if you want to win the NL East. And we have this year. And let's continue that momentum against this team. Let's keep pushing it forward, which I think now leads us into a way that we could probably 
start pushing this team forward a little bit even more. We like the roster. We like the way it's been looking. We promised mm-hmm. this last episode. Let's talk a little bit about trade deadline. I know you wrote down about, it looks like every single player in Major League Baseball on this notes. Yeah, I put about 25 names down. I was really getting into it yesterday looking this stuff and up. And very like pitching heavy. That seems to be where your focus is at as pitchers for the Mets, which is something that we direly need right now. Definitely, especially with Jeff McNeil coming back tomorrow, and it seems like Conforto and Nimmo coming back next weekend. As long as those guys do their job and perform up to their even most mild expectations and projections, this offense will be good. I have no doubt. We haven't seen even three of the Mets hitters be clicking at the same time yet. There's a lot of a ceiling left for this offense. I expect us to hit it at some point, maybe those back-to-back Pirate series as we go through the break. I'm not worried at all about the Mets offense. I'm not worried at all about the Mets offense. I like it. Double down. Not even a little bit. Not worried. I am worried about the Mets pitching depth, and that's where I want to take this trade deadline preview. We need pitching really badly. I don't know if we're going to get anything out of Noah Syndergaard or Carlos Carrasco this season. I don't. I really don't. It's tough to say because we just know it was getting ramped up so quickly, and then it just got yeah. shut down, and it has been shut down. And then Carrasco, I mean, he's 34, 35 years old, a torn hamstring that's going to bother him all year long. Doesn't matter how many of these shots he gets and how much rehab he does. He's 34, 35. He probably needs to have like actual rest, not do anything, surgery, whatever it takes. He's not going to be 100% this year. Are the Mets willing to risk that? We don't know. Right now, it seems like they're going to be very, very cautious with him. Yeah, and I think that's the name of the game. But just all that being said, he was throwing last week, but I just I can't count him to do anything. No. Possibly maybe a relief role. He's done that a couple times late in the season after injuries, after he battles leukemia. The other thing that we have to worry about about this Mets rotation is that I think it's very likely that Marcus Stroman and or Taiwan Walker are going to regress a little bit to their means. We know they're not two of the best pitchers nationally. They're both good. They've both proven that they are their floor and ceilings are risen to what we probably thought they were in April. They're not world beaters. No. We can't count on these guys to be stoppers. I would not even be super comfortable giving either of those, those guys the ball in game two of the NLDS. I wouldn't. I think that's... I think that's fair. I think I'm a little more confident on Stroman just because I, I, Stroman really does feel to rise to the occasion, and he's a guy who always plays yeah. with a chip on his shoulder, like we've said. So I'm okay with Stroman being game two. Obviously, there's some guys in the market, like a guy on the Washington Nationals by the name of Max Scherzer, that I'd much rather mm-hmm. prefer game two. But I don't think like him as a game two starter is necessarily a weakness, and I don't even think Taiwan as a three is necessarily a weakness. But of course, if we can improve and get better arms, why would we not do that? We're trying to win a World Series here. Yeah, definitely. And Scherzer is the jewel on the market right now. And I think his market is going to be very interesting to watch develop because he is very clearly the alpha of this trade deadline. He's still one of the best pitchers in the league at 35, however old he is, and he's a rental. So those two things are going to work very hardly against his value, but he's a Cy Young candidate, a perennial all-star, a potential Hall of Famer, yeah. I'll say that, and he's a pit bull. He, I want him on the mound when things the matter. The dude shoves. He's Mad Max for a reason. We all know the video of him literally screaming at himself on the mound in his glove like, you little bitch, you motherfucker, you, motherfucker. Better, you better throw that fucking strike. Like He is genuinely insane, but I love that because he's insane because all he wants to do is go out there and beat you. He wants to stomp on your throat. Yes, and the question begs now whether the Nationals are actually going to move him because we've seen this team claw themselves out of the grave once before. I'm not saying the Nationals are going to make a World Series run, but I'm saying that I think the people in their front office might become stubborn about being sellers, which I understand. Even just to reach the wild card game, which this roster is probably capable of, would probably change the way you f- they feel about this season. And this series, of course, helped them to feel that way. But they probably, if a bad month is ahead, they will move Max Scherzer. And I'm wondering 
how much you're willing to give up. To well, get a guy that was like going to be my whole point here is that as much as we love to talk about getting Max Scherzer, uh, so does every other team in Major League Baseball who's competing. Yeah. So you're going to get into a bidding war over a top of the line pitcher. The, I think the Nationals, they probably start with wanting Ronnie Mauricio or a Brett Beatty or a Francisco Alvarez. And I don't necessarily think that's crazy for a, even for a rental, especially because the markets can be so like in their favor. No, definitely. I, I would compare this trade to the CC Sabathia trade from 2007 or whenever that was, when he went ballistic for the Brewers down the stretch. And to get CC Sabathia for just a few short months, the Brewers sent, at the time, prized prospect Matt Laporta. Yeah, Matt Laporta. Laporta. Yeah, Matt Laporta. He was like a top 25, top 50 guy at the time, one of those classic power-hitting first basemen that's going to carry your franchise in the next generation. And Cleveland, of course, did not see that happen. But that's a pretty penny for four months of an ace and that's what's going to cost it's going to cost you a brett Bader. and as good as cc was i think max scherzer is 10 times the pitcher that cc even was that season whoa, whoa, whoa. do you remember what cc Sabathia did after that no trade? i'm saying like even before that i'm not talking about after the trade he was unbelievable i remember him CC, stomping CC on he had a couple couple good no years. he's a hall of famer i'm not i'm not yeah. i think it's more of a credit to how good max scherzer is and he really is on another level cc's not a cy young guy max scherzer is CC in 2005 through eight, he was definitely a Cy Young guy repeatedly. CC was incredible, and that CC was still in his physical prime. I don't want to get to a CC yeah, okay, Sabathia argument. Yeah, we're not arguing CC. He's a trade deadline. He's good. That's what but I want to say. I'm just saying this is an ace caliber guy who's being moved as a rental. That was the most similar trade Fair. I could imagine. Yeah, and I think Granky had a couple times too where he was a rental and he was getting thrown around too. So like there, yeah. this this is there's stuff to compare it to. I just don't know if there's as many teams who are actually going to be in on those guys as Max Scherzer is this season. Definitely, and that is why I think the Mets can find significant value in trading for a starter not named Max Scherzer, possibly even jumping the market because team you can give a little bit more, probably not one of their top three or four prospects, but maybe if so, if you get a guy with a couple of years of control because team's going to need a pitcher next year too, and kind of attack the market before the bidding starts for the top dog. A couple of names I like a lot are Kenta Maeda, and John Means. Yeah, John Means is an interesting one because the Orioles are in a really, really weird spot. Their farm system is starting to get loaded. They have another top mm -hmm. pick in this draft. But they're seemingly still probably about three to four years minimum away from really being a contender. And at that point, John Means is going to be probably hitting free agency, I would think, at, around that time. No, definitely. John Means is going to be hitting arbitration for the first time this year. He's due for a massive, massive race. Right now, he's still making the minimum. Which is crazy. And the Orioles love that. Yeah, because if you... Yeah, exactly. But you make you spend three years making the minimum, and then you're arbitration eligible. That's going to be the theme in a lot of these guys I've t I'm going to talk about about the trade deadline, is teams like the Orioles, who are not competing, want to shed money. And a guy like Means, with three more years of control, like is he really going to be on the next great Orioles team? No, and I think that's part of the reasons why they would be open to hearing what you'd give up for him. I don't think that he ends up getting moved anyway at this deadline, but I think if you come to them with an offer they can't refuse, they're going to pull the trigger every time. Definitely. I think that... A team like the Orioles, who has a lot of talent, pitching talent, a lot of corner outfield talent, who need and Adley Rushman, best catching prospect in baseball, a team that is desperate, desperate for middle infield help, could move John Means for Ronnie Mauricio. The only thing is, can we get better for Ronnie Mauricio? Is there better out there? Like, I mean, could we? I know this is crazy because he's not pitching well, even though he's starting to be better. But like, can we go after Sonny Gray then, or Luis Castillo with Ronnie Mauricio? Because the Reds also need some middle infield help. Definitely, very badly. And I think that the Reds will be players at deadline, but the Reds are kind of hot right now. They just got swept this weekend, but they had won six in a row prior to that. They're a team that, at least over the last couple of years, has been very willing to compete. So I, don't, I didn't put those guys on here because I consider them still yes. in it, more so than the Twins 
which I think Ketamaeda could be an option too, even though when Jose can... Barrios, is he an option? I was thinking that maybe, but I think that the Twins might be stubborn because they probably still like that roster enough being competitive the last two years. I would love Barrios. I would definitely trade Mauricio for Barrios. I th- I'd be interested to see, like, obviously we'll never know this answer, but I want to know if Hefner wants Barrios. I honestly would be really interested to see if Hefner wants him because Barrios has really never peaked, has never really hit that ex- no. expectation that we've ex- like thought he was going to, and Hefner had been there. So I wonder if yeah. Hefner's like in on this guy or if he's like, you know what? I don't necessarily believe the hype. Definitely a pretty interesting point because Barrios did have two very good seasons with Hefner. They aren't really very different than the other seasons he's had, though. Second highest K rate he ever had. The At the time, the lowest walk rate he had before this year. But I don't know. I think Barrios is always just that very solid yet unspectacular. And I think that means is kind of the same, but he'll just come with a much reduced price tag. And those guys are basically the same age. They strike out a very similar amount of, of batters. Means is a lefty. Brios is righty. And I think Means actually does have another gear because we've seen the Orioles not really get the most out of pitchers consistently until this year. There's a couple of relievers I'm going to mention who I like from the Orioles. But just leaving Camden Yards, you're going to have, a, and leaving the AL East, you're going to see a massive bump in production. Means is a guy, as you could probably tell from listening to me the last five minutes, that I would like to target as the Mets. Three years of control. Happy to pay his arbitration bill. He's got a little Gosman in him where, like, Gosman pitched in uh, Baltimore, in Atlanta, in Cincinnati. All hitters' ballparks by a good margin. Yeah. Goes to San Francisco, and the dude's all of a sudden nasty. Definitely. And then just a couple of, like, lower-key guys I've mentioned here. Guys I know you hate, but guys I know uh, I Let like. me guess one. John Gray. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Of, of course, course, of course. I have no interest in that guy. I'm so out on him. You, were, you just gave the great logic as to why John Gray can be good. This guy's a former first-round pick. He doesn't throw 98 like he once did, but he still has a pretty good curveball. He still has a slider. The fastball's still middling. You get the guy out of the course field, I'm sure you can extract value out of him. He's going to cost not that much as a rental. As a rental, sure. I'm sure you'd probably give up like a mid-level prospect kind of thing in like that 10 to 15 range yeah. and maybe some money, whatever it's going to take. I'm more interested in Herman Marquez, though. I think, like, we've seen him go against the Mets, and when he's out of course, he's legitimately a very, very good pitcher. Like, he has really good stuff, has the swing and miss capability. That's a guy I would go after if we're really going to target Rockies pitchers. 100%. I would go after both of them, if I'm being perfectly honest with you. Like, I would just, I would like to get more pitchers on this team. This team needs a lot more pitchers. I also mentioned a couple guys who are kind of funny. Kyle Gibson, even though his price is probably very inflated because. Because of how good he's been this year, oh, I have so I know no you don't like him. In Kyle Gibson. He's got four pitch mix. He, three of them are above average. Like I don't. I think there could be something there. I think Merrill Kelly also could be useful, and he'll probably cost almost nothing. Michael Pineda, who I don't like at all, but he just will eat. Innings. Dude, you're just naming all I'm, former guys that Jeremy Hefner's worked with. Michael Pineda with the Twins. Uh, Kyle, Kyle Gibson. Gibson with the Twins. I don't want these Twins pitchers unless it's Jose Barrios <laughs> or Kenta Maeda. Well, I have a great name for you here, Chris Flexen. Oh my God! I know he's been pitching well. Really but well. I got I got too much PTSD with Chris Flexen. You might as well tell me Corey Oswalt's on the mound. They're the same person to me. Dude, Chris Flexen has had a great year after spending one or two years in Korea. He Last start, he made a very significant pitch mix change where he threw his fewest fastballs this season, his most changeups. That change has been his highest whiff-getting pitch all season. He threw eight scoreless innings with eight strikeouts against the Twins. He won't cost that much because he is still Chris Flexen. He still just throws 92 miles an hour. I know you want to go big game hunting, but... I don't know how badly I want to trade any of our big three. I really don't. Well, I don't either. And that's why, like, I feel like if we're going to go after guys that are, like, aggressive, like, I don't want, like, the guys who, like, how good can Chris Flexen really be? Like, in this rotation, if he's going to be here for a couple years, he's, what, like, the five? 
Yeah, the four, the five. He's depth, and the Mets need depth really bad there's, right now. We need. Anything. There's got to be somebody somewhere that's like hiding. Like, uh, I don't know. What do you think about like Spencer Turnbull? I love Spencer Turnbull, but I, I just don't think the Tigers are very likely to let him loose. He's got three more years of control. So similarly, he's going to be hitting arbitration. Mm. I just think he's a little bit too good compared to the rest of this okay. list where he will cost significant prospect capital. That's probably going to cost you a JTJ. Okay, that's fair. I can see that side. Yeah, I mean, like, listen, if we get Chris Flexen for whoever's the number 18 prospect in the Mets organization, Carlos Cortez. I'm not going to lose sleep yeah. over it. I'll make that trade every no. single day just because, like you said, we do new do do need pitching. But I also find myself not wanting to shop in the bargain bin a little bit here. I know it's not the bargain bin, but it feels like it. I think, and a lot of Mets fans will share that same sentiment. For sure. And I, I would be down to trade Mauricio. I wouldn't trade Alvarez. I'm untouchable, yeah. Me. I would trade Mauricio or Bailey if the right offer came to the bat, where if either it was Scherzer and like a kick-in or something, or we were getting multiple years of Barrios, Marquez, Means, yeah, like Castillo. If it's around a guy who I actually think could be a one-two, like not including yes, Brown, of course. of course. I'm like a traditional rotation one-two without the best pitcher in baseball history. Sure, I would trade one of those three guys because we in the this, we have a three-year World Series window. I'd say right yeah. now, I would. I feel like every team that like your World Series window really is so small. The only team that's kind of extended that is the Dodgers because they're just a different beast, and maybe even so the Rays. But like, it's not realistic to think that you're going to be a World Series contender every single year for like the next six. You have your window. You got to take advantage of it. Definitely. Another guy on this bargain bin list who I just remembered is Dylan Bundy, who's been horrific over the last two months. But, like, there's still – the K rate is still there. Yeah. He still has – the pitches are still there. The movement's there. The velocity is there. There's just something technically wrong, and no one is really that successful ever in Anaheim pitching. Like, there's still a moldable piece of clay there, similarly to Gaussman, like we just mentioned. I think the Mets have an advantage right now over most teams in baseball. We can get more out of guys other teams get less out of. And I would like to use that advantage soon because we need a pitcher so badly. Yes, we definitely need a starting pitcher. We also need probably a little bullpen help. It's always nice. You can't have too many bullpen arms. And there are definitely some arms that are very much available. Uh, A couple of the guys that you have on here, I really like. I'm a huge Tanner Scott fan. I saw you write down his name. I've been hyping him up since last year. He's a left-handed pitcher who throws gas. And while he does have some control issues, I like that he's a different kind of lefty than Aaron Loop. He gives us a different mm-hmm. look, and he really does just try to shove it down your throat. Yeah, definitely. And the Mets need a lefty very, very, very badly in this bullpen. And I think they just need another high-leverage guy in general because as much as I trust, like, famili- uh, from, not familiar, I don't trust Millie that much, as much as I trust Diaz, Lugo, Castro, and May, Castro and May have proven to be inconsistent, and Lugo is just always going to be a health concern with the partially torn UCL he's been pitching with for years. So I would like to add another high-leverage reliever who could throw gas. And I listed another Baltimore Orioles reliever on here, a guy we've made fun of previously, Cole Salsler, who has just ascended to being one of the most effective relievers in baseball this year. 36% K rate, nuts. He's added six inches of drop to his changeup compared to last year. And he won't be the cheapest. He's got four additional years of control after this one. So that's you're getting a long time of Cole Sulcer. But that was similar to the Castro that we got him. And I think that this Orioles team, much like most of the other bad teams in baseball, wants to sell. And we could probably put a Sulcer, a Scott, a Means together, create a package around some middle infield prospects that the Mets have a couple of. Not necessarily Ron and Mauricio, but we do have some middle infield guys. We can get creative and make something out of this. A name I saw that you put on the list, too, was Jose Cisnero 
which I feel yeah. like that's a little bit more of like the Miguel Castro trade. He's a guy who's like, he's got the stuff. You see it sometimes hasn't yeah. gotten the command or hasn't gotten the uh, uh, stats that you've hoped for, but you can clearly see like the top end quality stuff that exists there. And it feels like that'd be another guy to grab if the Mets, I, I, what would he even cost you? I can't imagine anything. No, it wouldn't cost you much. Probably cost you like your 13th ranked prospect, which I think I would do that right now in a second. He's just a live yeah. arm. A lot of the guys I put in this list are live arms, and we need another live arm. And I trust what Hefner can do with a live arm. Another live arm who I put on here, who was actually my Castro comp from this deadline, is a guy named Cody Stashik mm. from the Twins. I've seen the name in baseball cards, and I, I usually put it to the side because I'm like, ah, this guy's not going to be worth anything. Yeah, I think he was like a 26, 27-year-old 26, rookie. City kid, though, St. John's grad. Oh, hey, yeah, let's go. That's pretty cool. Probably a Mets fan, if you take that as you will. He has the sixth most ride on his four-seam fastball in all of baseball. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, and when I say ride for the listeners at home, I mean vertical movement as it's listed on Savant. So the fastball, that four-seam fastball, it spins so much, it looks like it's riding. Which is sick. Yes, and he only throws like between 90 and 93 miles an hour. So it's very peculiar that he has that, but it's still getting a lot of whiffs. Is he a Minnesota twin? Yeah, he, he is a Minnesota twin. You want to just have these reunions with Jeremy Hefner, don't you? I think they have a lot of interesting arms. Like, what can I say? Bring him <laughs> in. Let's go. The guy has a 35% K rate, but he's walking 30% of guys. His slider has like decent specs, even though it's not getting the best results and his command looks kind of spotty. But this is very Castro-esque. A guy with a, a live fastball, not the velocity that Castro has, but the overall pitch dynamics that I think the modern baseball coaches want and covet. And I think a guy we can do a lot with. Yeah, I mean, like, th there are so many arms, so the Mets at least can be, like, super... They're not... You, you can't give up any top prospects for the arms available right now because there's so many. There's a plethora of yes. reliever arms, which is a great thing for the Mets. I think I listed 30 yeah. here. Oh, there's so many more. I mean, like, we can't go through all this in the list because we don't want to have, like, a two-hour podcast here. But James <laughs> literally has... I mean, I'll just r ramble through some names. Tyler Duffy, uh, Ian Kennedy, Kyle Crick, mm -hmm. Richard Rodriguez, mm -hmm. uh, Chris Stratton. Like, those are just some of the names. There's more. You guys don't even have a clue. <laughs> no. And I think the whole point of this is, like I said before, the Mets... Their Mets are in a position where we know that we can get more out of most of these arms and teams are currently getting. Like, that is a very valuable place to be. We can take chances on a lot of these guys because we can trust that we can turn them into something. And I think they will do that. I really think that this Mets team is going to be aggressive with the trade deadline. I think we're going to make multiple moves. I don't know if we're necessarily going to be big game hunting. It seems like Steve Cohen alluded that that is on the table. I was literally pulling up that tweet looking for exactly yeah. what he said because it is a little eye-opening. Mm -hmm. I think it is. I think he he's a Bobby Axelrod. He smells blood in the water. Like He wants to attack it. Yeah, so I'm looking it up, and basically along the lines, he was asked about uh, luxury tax, right? The threshold. And they were talking about like going and acquiring guys, and he said, if we're going to go over, we're going over big. I'm not going over and paying the tax on like a million, two million dollars. Yeah. Like If we're going over, we're spending big and I have no reason not to. So if you're a Mets fan, that's music to your ears because that's all we've ever been asking for. Oh, my God. When I read that quote, I was rock yeah, hard. I was, I was ready to go. I was like, wow, I could run through a wall. I could run a mile right now. That's what we got to do. So if we can mix together some of these low-key relievers. Steve, I know you're listening. If you want me to send you my list, I'll send you my list. I'll get, I have some scouting grades on here. I'd love to share them with James you. James was right on the money with Kendall Graveman, if you want to think, like, a track record here. I was way on the money with Kendall Graveman. I had another crazy one. You were like, what? Yeah, you what did have it? one. I can't remember. Uh, think about it. I'm oh, like, oh, Ranger one. Suarez. <laughs> yeah, wow. I pulled that guy out of my ass. <laughs> crazy calls. <laughs>
I have a weird reliever mind. Maybe we'll share some of these in the next couple episodes as the trade deadline gets closer, just because like I kind of want to like fluff my feathers a little bit and talk to you guys about some weird relievers. I love weird relievers, and I want the Mets to get these guys because I'd love some more high leverage arms. Yeah, we could definitely use them. And on the offensive side, it's really tough. The market's not particularly great right now, especially for what the Mets need and what's available. There's a lot of shortstops available. There's a lot of corner outfielders, third baseman, first baseman. What the Mets need is a center fielder. And unfortunately, the only guy that's really available is like Starling Marte. You could go after Cattell Marte and be crazy, but you're going to give up. Or Buxton. Yeah, or Buxton, but you're going to give up a ton, a ton. And it, again, those yeah. it, that's if those guys are available. I'm pretty sure those guys are available. I would guess at least Buxton is, uh, like as a rental. Buxton feels like you'd have to give up so much. A ton. He's a premier player in the league. I just don't know if the Mets stand to benefit the most giving up that much for an offensive player rather than... And I'm with you on that. I think the only guy that interests me a little bit is Starling Marte because he's on an expiring contract. He's actually playing a really good center field this year, and he's hitting the ball really well. I would think that the Marlins would move him again for a mid-level prospect. Again, I I don't know what the market's looking like for him because he is one of the few actual center fielders available. But if he is, I think Mets should give him a call. Why not? Let's see what he's got. Definitely. I'd love to get Starling Marte into this mix. I think he'd be a lightning rod top of the order. Definitely. Definitely. So... A lot of good things here in episode number 25. We talked about the Mets series. We talked about trades. We got the Atlanta Braves series coming up in which we just, we need to beat the Braves. We need a little bit of reassurance on our shoulders as Mets fans to know that this team's, we're going to be good. Because I think a lot of people after this series, it didn't feel like panic bells and didn't seem like ring the alarms, but it seems like Mets fans came a little bit back down to earth. We were riding high for a Mm -hmm. little bit and it was like, okay, Mm -hmm. that's right. We are playing with a lot of injuries. This team the magic's starting to rub off a little bit here. The guys need to come back. We need our reinforcements. But we're still in first place. All things considering, we're still in first. We need to get some juice back for this this doubleheader tomorrow. Yeah. The Mets have to, I would like a sweep tomorrow, at least win the DeGrom game. Get, I don't know, start to feel good again about what this Mets team can do. I think there's a lot of bad luck that contributed this weekend in Washington. A lot of just low testosterone in general. The team just seems like half dead at times. I don't know. This team's like poorly lit, I feel like, watching on television. Washington National like, Park dips. just sucks. It does suck. It's awful. Nationals organization sucks. The franchise sucks. The social media sucks. I hate those people. It's a shame that they won a World Series because, God, they were so irrelevant. Such a shame. Did you see their tweet they tried to duck on the mess today? Being like, ah, nothing like tweeting from my Washington Nationals account. And they put um, a ring, a ring on the hand on the keyboard. Nice. Cool. You Cool. You really played a big part in that uh, Jim Smith who runs the Twitter account. Yeah, I'm sure the national social media director has a ring. I'm sure. Ridiculous. But anyway, guys. I think that's where we're going to wrap up episode number 25 of the Mets Up Podcast. Make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at Mets Up, YouTube channel Mets Up Podcast. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, anywhere you listen to them, you'll find us. Make sure you follow James on Twitter at Jeter Had No Range, me at Giraffe Neck Mark. And uh, yeah, that's going to be the end of episode number 25, guys. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. And we'll see you after the Brave series. Peace out. See you next time.